This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Penny Johnston and welcome to the very last episode of Baby Talk. This is Baby Talk podcast with Penny Johnston. Around the world, one of the most controversial topics related to parenting, okay, well, if I'm honest, second to breastfeeding, has to be the practice of co-sleeping with your baby. In some countries, parents are warned that this is a deadly practice and they can put their baby's life at risk. But is this a case of a huge warning for a very few babies that might be affected? And you wouldn't separate a newborn baby from its mother for any period of time. It just simply wouldn't be safe. Yet in our cultural environment, we've invented warm, safe, enclosed housing and separate rooms to sleep in and then We expect that babies ought to be able to be put down somewhere and left for prolonged periods of time. But that is not how babies' biology is made. It's not how they've evolved. One of the very first podcasts we ever published on Baby Talk, and consequently one of the most downloaded, was of a study of co-sleeping that was conducted at Durham University. So... For our very last episode of Baby Talk, it is my very great pleasure to welcome back that researcher, Professor Helen Ball. So, Professor Ball, this year you actually received an award from the Queen. No, 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 we, no, I didn't. I got to meet Camilla and Charles. They were subbing for the Queen on the day that we went. Was that an award for you or the whole university? So that was an award for the university. It's called the Queen's Anniversary Prize. It's awarded to institutions of higher and further education and the university has to submit a piece of work that that they have done that has kind of benefited society and so they submitted our research and outreach and engagement work as their example and we won it. For people who have not been with Baby Talk since the start, your amazing research has all got to do with mothers and babies and observing their sleep and sleep patterns, the whole sleep lab and how it started. Okay, so our sleep lab is, we call it the parent-infant sleep lab because we actually invite dads to come as well. So we have this, it looks like a domestic bedroom, but there are surreptitious cameras on the ceiling and there are the physiological monitoring equipment by the bed so that we can wire up the baby. Sometimes the mum and the dad and the baby, but we haven't done that for a while. It's usually the baby. And then next door, we have a monitoring room where all of the video feeds and the uh, physiology feeds run through into our computers. And we observe and record different sleep scenarios. Most recently, we've been looking at sleep products like nests and pods. Before that, we were looking at babies who were swaddled and not swaddled. Before that, we looked at co-sleeping families and had babies in bed, not in bed, in a cot across the room. And, you know, what we're interested in is how much sleep everybody gets, of course, what its impact is on things like breastfeeding, and also then what parents are actually doing with their babies in the middle of the night. You know, what are the ways that they found to cope with the sleep disruption? Is what they're doing safe or unsafe? You know, how do they arrange it in order to make it as safe as possible? What can we learn from watching people? that helps formulate guidance for for other new families. There's always a lot of opinions on things like sleep. There's not so Mm -hmm. much work that's ever done on actually observing it. No, so that that, that was the whole point when we said it, was to try and 
try and find a way to get some objective evidence around what's happening and what we can tell families, etc. But one of the big issues, of course, is that sometimes babies die while they're asleep and nobody knows what the actual cause of that is. That's why it's called usually called sudden unexplained death in infancy. Um, so knowing kind of what things might be contributing to that, we know that we know that things that physiologically stress babies sometimes contribute to that, especially if they're a vulnerable baby, if they were born prematurely, there was smoke exposed in pregnancy, something like that. So, you know, over the years, people have learned that putting babies down on their tummies is a physiological stressor that contributes to their chance of uh, dying suddenly and unexpectedly, and, and if they're heavily wrapped. So, you know, we're just, we're, we're just looking for instances where those sort of things might happen by accident and how we might prevent them. We first met each other because one of the things that you're researching is co-sleeping. Back in the day, that well, I think it's still controversial, isn't it? It is still controversial, yeah. But in the UK, over the course of the last five, six years, things have shifted in terms of the guidance around co-sleeping and we've produced new information for parents. And the discussion seems to be moving in a much more parent-friendly direction here. And parents are less uptight about the whole co-sleeping bed sharing thing. And if you're if you're involved in the sort of the public health research and, and co-sleeping research world, you'll probably have heard terms like risk minimization and risk elimination. Risk elimination means you're taking a kind of a hardline stance and, and advising parents to never ever bring their babies in the bed because under some circumstances it can be risky and they might not do it in a safe way and therefore if everybody doesn't do it then the chances of a baby dying are reduced. And the other hand is that what we call risk minimization which is accepting that this is a common behavior. A lot of parents do it. Most babies are perfectly fine. It helps parents cope. It's what babies want to be close to their parents. It makes nighttime breastfeeding easier. And there are some things that you need to know about it that can make it safer or more hazardous. And that's the route that we've now gone down in the UK is to talk to parents about it, to acknowledge that they do it, to assume that everybody needs this information because at some point, pretty much everybody falls asleep with their baby and knowing the safest way to do that if you end up having to do it without you know having plans to do it might help you think about some of the hazards and avoid them so the conversation has changed quite dramatically in the UK. Are parents advised that it's okay under most circumstances? They're told that their baby needs to be on a clear flat sleep surface but they're not told what that clear flat sleep surface should be we used to say a cot by your bed now because we're aware of the fact that many parents can't afford a cot or don't have room in their bedroom to put a cot by their bed that their babies might sleep on lots of different surfaces but that needs to be flat and that if that's their parents bed then it also needs their babies also need to be positioned flat and with clear space you know around them so that they're not up by the pillows or they've got the parents covers over them or what have you um, so it's a way of acknowledging that babies do sleep in lots of different places and we do include in our guidance that's given out nationally now to new parents a picture of 
what safer co-sleeping looks like. So, you know, it's kind of showing parents that, yes, this is something that other people do. And if they're, if you're going to do it as safely as possible, make it look like this and think about all these things before you do it. And parents really seem to be appreciating that they were quite scared to have discussions about co-sleeping with their health professionals previously because they thought they were just going to get chastised and told that they shouldn't be doing it. But now it's sort of brought those conversations out into the open, which I think is, can only be a good thing. The really tragic thing is, is that it's one thing to want to sleep or co-sleep with your baby. It's another thing not to be able to afford a cot or space to mm-hmm. sleep mm-hmm. your baby separately. That's awful. Yeah. But we've got, you know, we've got quite a lot of people uh, in the UK who are living in impoverished circumstances these days. A lot of the social safety nets are, are disappearing. A lot of them are living in temporary accommodation. And then, of course, we've got refugees from various countries who are being put up in bed and breakfasts and hotels, and they don't necessarily get given, you know, all of the equipment that they might need for their baby. So they're doing the best they can in the place that they've landed. I don't think there's a health professional in Australia who would ever recommend co-sleeping officially. It's discouraged even to the point of a very strong coroner's report that suggested that it was deadly to co-sleep with your baby. But sometimes those uh, deadly incidents of co-sleeping have a range of other factors that probably contributed to the death of the infant. And those kind of contextual details often aren't reported either in newspaper stories, etc., which means that parents get a very limited view of what the circumstances were when they read about these stories. It's, it's certainly the case here in the UK, and I think it's also the case up in Queensland, where I know um, Professor Janine Young has done a lot of work around co-sleeping and, and SUDI, etc., and how to convey safe information to parents up there that the babies who die nowadays, the babies who die suddenly and unexpectedly, both um, in the parents' bed and in other circumstances, are the most, come from the most vulnerable and most deprived sections of the community. And so for the vast majority of babies, it's not a huge increase in risk to co-sleep in a safe way. It's not an increased risk at all in some, from the data in some studies. So different jurisdictions, different countries have produced their own data and some of it, depending on how they slice it and dice it for analysis, some of it appears to show that there is no increased risk for any babies if they're not in hazardous circumstances. Some of it shows that there might be an increased risk for the youngest babies if they're not in hazardous circumstances. But all of it shows that it's really hazardous circumstances and living in very vulnerable families that are, is, is the greatest risk. So here in the UK, and I know in Queensland, because we had a conference on Monday where she spoke and talked about this, the public health guidance is really focusing on getting information and support to those most vulnerable families to reduce these deaths now. It's not a huge concern amongst everybody else. Also going back to your original work as an academic which you told me was uh, working with the great apes in Africa. Well, monkeys. 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 Mine were monkeys, yeah. Obviously they co-sleep with their babies. They not dream of putting their babies down anywhere. They would just get picked off by predators. 
Good point. Good point. So in an evolutionary sense, I do joke about how the Neanderthal mothers probably didn't have a separate cave for their babies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so evolutionarily, we should be equipped to deal with co-sleeping. We should be, yes. I mean, it, it obviously evolved in the context of breastfeeding and mother in some contact, and you wouldn't separate a newborn baby from its mother for any period of time. It just simply wouldn't be safe. Yet in our cultural environment, we've invented warm, safe, enclosed housing and separate rooms to sleep in. And then we expect that babies ought to be able to be put down somewhere and left for prolonged periods of time. But that is not how babies' biology is made. It's not how they've evolved. They've evolved to be in close contact with the carer at all times because that's their safety and their security and their food source. So babies expect that and want that, and that's why babies often protest about being put down and left alone and, and much prefer to fall asleep in contact with the caregiver than, than by themselves. And it's why mothers often also feel kind of this wrench when they have to put their, when somebody tells them that they can't keep their baby close, that they have to have it sent to a nursery in the hospital after it's been born or they have to put it in a separate room at a certain age. That goes against our biological instincts to care for these very vulnerable creatures that uh, that were produced. Would you go as far as to say that there there is a um, potential advantage to having your baby closer? Are there reasons why it would be a good idea? Well, particularly if you're breastfeeding, yes, because, you know, to to maintain milk supply, a mother has to breastfeed frequently. It's a supply and demand system, so the milk has to be removed in order to produce more. So um, so babies who, who suckle regularly, their mother's milk comes in sooner, it's more copious when it comes in, and they're more likely to carry on breastfeeding for longer if they're feeding frequently during the day and the night because their milk supply is maintained. So for breastfeeding, mothers definitely being in close contact with their babies day and night is an advantage, and there are multiple studies that that demonstrate that now. Now, I'm going to be a little bit controversial here, but if there's only room in the bed for two, do you reckon the, the partner might need to move out for a little while? So, yes, sometimes. I mean, in many cultures, that is just what automatically happens. When we studied nighttime infant care practices in a town in England called Bradford, which is a town that's got a a history of immigration from uh, the the Asian subcontinent. So 50% of the babies that are born in Bradford are of Pakistani origin. When we talked to Pakistani mothers compared with white British mothers about what happens at night, it was just a matter of course that the mum and the baby slept in the bed and the dad had a single bed in the bedroom that he slept on. And they would say things like, well, some of the babies and a good Pakistani husband understands that. So, you know, it's fairly typical in a lot of places for the mum and the baby to, to be together and for the dad to sleep somewhere else for a short while. And I think if parents feel as though there isn't enough room in the bed to give their baby uh, a clear, safe space, then that is one of the options is for the, for the dad to go and sleep in a separate bed for a few months. It's not the end of the world. And it certainly means that they all get a bit more sleep. Really, very pragmatic solution. <laughs> Just met warn him in advance that this is likely what's going to happen. It's a, a lot of it is about expectations. 
And when it happens, when something happens unexpectedly in the middle of the night, like, oh, well, I suppose I'd better go and creep somewhere else then. It's a lot uh, more negative than if uh, if it's like, well, you know, if the baby's not settling and you're not getting any sleep, dear, and we need a bit more room, then might be a good idea if you go and spend a few nights in the spare room. It's not because I don't love you. And this is not forever. Babies will start to wiggle and jiggle and uh-huh. they'll start to sleep through the night and it, it yeah. won't be as much of an issue that they're not in the same space as you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, th- th- there are several different sort of trajectories that people have identified with regards to to bed sharing and um, you know, one is that the baby bed shares kind of like pretty much from when it comes home for the first few months until mum decides she's not going to breastfeed anymore and then it gets moved into its own cut by the bed as she's weaning it and then eventually into its own room. Um, And another is that parents um, don't co-sleep in those early months, but when their toddler starts getting kind of demanding um, and not wanting to be by themselves, you know, when they're experiencing uh, separation anxiety about one year old, then they start bringing the the baby into bed then to kind of calm it and get get back to sleep and not be up, you know, playing at three in the morning. So there's kind of like there's early co-sleeping, there's late co-sleeping or bed sharing. And then there's those people who just do it throughout. And I think they're probably the people who always intended to do it. They're not doing it, for, you know, in response to the need to, to feed frequently or the need to kind of be able to get some sleep with a toddler. It was ju- It's just their plan. And then there, of course, there are people who never do it or that do it very infrequently. So there was a study published probably getting on to 10 years ago now that kind of did some kind of factor analysis that identified these different trajectories amongst families as to as to what happened. So, yeah, not everybody keeps their baby in the bed until they're three years old. Not everybody even brings their newborn into bed. Some of them start much later. Um, but those who are doing it for the purposes of breastfeeding tend to kind of taper off during that first year and, and move their baby into a separate room when it stops breastfeeding. I tell you, if, if you had a choice of what age to share a bed with, I'd definitely go newborn over toddler. <laughs> They've got elbows. You just get kicked in the head with a toddler, don't yes. you? Yes. <laughs> oh, they're awful. <laughs> awful. Acrobats in the bed at midnight. People call it reactive rather than planned bed sharing. So, yeah, it's, yeah, you're usually doing it to try and solve the problem with the baby's kind of waking when you don't want it to or something like that. What are some of the other things, fascinating things, that you guys are researching at Durham University? Well, we've been looking for the last few years, really, at how parents cope and not just using co-sleeping as a strategy, but, you know, all of the ways in which parents cope with just the, the way in which infant sleep develops over time, there's a bit of a tendency, I think, from what we found in our research, for, for parents to be aware of the fact that babies are going to wake frequently in the first month or so after they bring them home from the hospital. But then there's, there's this idea that that sort of settles down, and once your baby gets to be about three months old, it'll start sleeping through the night. And then sleeping through the night kind of just continues and you're home and dry. But of course, that doesn't often happen. There's a very few lucky parents for whom that is the trajectory. But the vast majority of people experience it much more like a roller coaster. So, you know, the baby will sleep for a little while, sleep, sleep through the night for a few weeks and then it'll start night waking again. 
and then it'll go back to sleeping through the night and then it'll start waking again. So we've been looking at, you know, what do parents do under those circumstances and what information would be helpful to them. Uh, we've been working with uh, Pam Douglas, Dr. Pam Douglas, who's also in Brisbane, at the Possums & Co. charity, which she's done a lot of work developing suggestions for parents based on babies' sleep biology, so thinking about the baby's sleep pressure, uh, the baby's circadian rhythm, how to support the development of those things, thinking about what are the consequences of long daytime naps on nighttime sleep, what are the consequences of the time you might put your baby down to sleep in the evening, etc. So we've been working with her to develop this intervention that health professionals in the UK can use with parents that we call Sleep Baby and You. And it's basically about having a conversation about all of these components of developing infant sleep and helping parents identify things that they're currently doing that they might be able to change that might help to support you know a bit more sleep at night for their baby and a bit less tiredness for themselves and how to frame things for themselves about what their goals are and, and what is bothering them the most and you know there's a bit of talking therapy in there and stuff so that's what we've been excited about lately because people are really enthusiastic about it and feel that it could be a, a quite helpful thing to have available. All really great ideas. I can see why I think everyone would have voted for you to win the Queen's Award if it means that new parents get more sleep. <laughs> yes, I don't have a magic wand, unfortunately. I can't just make it happen. There is a bit of work involved. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, since we've last spoken, I mean, what's what's an amazing thing that you've discovered about babies and sleeping or not sleeping? Well, I think, I mean, I, I don't think that this is a new discovery for me, but I think something that, that many parents find an amazing light bulb moment, really, that we talk about a lot is that baby's sleep is hugely variable from baby to baby. So, you know, you often see charts in clinic walls or tables in, in baby manuals that kind of say, at this age, your baby should be sleeping for this amount of time. And then at this age, your baby should be sleeping for this amount of time. And those, those figures are just based on studies that have looked at the amount of sleep a a cohort of babies got and it's the average for that cohort but if you look at different studies the averages for their cohorts are all over the place and the individual range of variation within those averages that makes up those averages is huge it's like from 22 hours down to about 10 hours so helping parents understand that Every baby isn't going to sit on the average line and their baby might be at the top of this distribution or the bottom of this distribution and they're comparing it with their sister's baby or their friend's baby who is at a different place on that distribution means, you know, that there's really no point in comparing. They're probably on a completely different percentile in terms of how their sleep's going to develop and somebody else's baby's sleep's going to develop and or how much sleep they might need at any given age point. So there's a huge range of variation that underlies those charts and those tables. So take them all with a pinch of salt and don't expect your baby to be average. Professor Helen Ball from Durham University and her fascinating and ongoing study of co-sleeping with your baby. So that's it, the very last of the Baby Talk podcasts on ABC. 
baby talk, I guess, has been my baby for a very long time, almost as long as my real baby, who this year, ironically, started high school. So saying goodbye to this podcast and all the incredible people who listen to it has been one of the very hardest things I've ever had to do as a broadcaster. It has been such a pleasure to learn about what people want to know about parenting. And I've often told the joke that if it wasn't for the fact I was such an unprepared and useless parent myself, that baby talk might not have existed in the real world. I know I had zero clues about being a parent. I had all the stuff, by golly did I have a lot of equipment, but no real knowledge about how to go about doing one of the hardest things I've ever done. Over the years, I've recorded interviews that were full of me doing the full forehead slap. Why didn't I know that? Why didn't I do that? What have I done to my child by not knowing that? But I have to say, he's turning out okay. I have loved running into people who've been listening to Baby Talk over the years. I remember meeting a mum in New Zealand, one in Hong Kong. Even one of the new neighbours that moved into my street has listened to Baby Talk. And I am thankful to you all for listening and sharing the podcast. I'm also thankful from in the ABC to James O'Brien, who suggested that I could do something about babies when I returned from maternity leave. The lovely Terri-Ann Kingsley, who is my technical guru, who came up with the idea of making Baby Talk a podcast. And of course, I need to thank the many, many people who contributed to the podcast. Our incredible guests, everyone from the Chief Midwife of Australia, oh, I love that title, to the young mum who described the taste of postnatal depression returning just after the birth of her second child. I am grateful to everyone who shared their story, everyone who took the time to explain their research, shared their enthusiasm and their experience with us all. And of course, I'm grateful to you for taking the time to listen, to download and share the Baby Talk podcast. It grew only through the generosity of people who told someone else that there was something worth listening to about being a parent. And I am so grateful for it all. I am so sorry that my time with the AVC and Baby Talk is coming to an end, but if I'm being honest, having a second round of breast cancer is really difficult. And so if I can be bossy just one more time and tell everybody to make sure that you maintain your breast health, check your breasts and believe in yourself if you're worried. There's way too much at stake when you're a parent to take a chance on, oh, maybe this lump will go away. As a parent, I know there are a lot of people relying on you now. I will miss sharing your journey with you on a weekly basis, but I also wish you the most fabulous time on your parenting roller coaster ride. So, hopefully, someday I'll see you somewhere, sometime. But this is the last time, though, on Baby Talk. ABC Baby Talk is a weekly podcast on ABC Digital Radio, wherever you get your podcasts and on the ABC Listen app. Like us on Facebook to find out as soon as a new episode is ready. Just search for ABC Baby Talk. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.